What the hell, WB? Here we are with the most recent merger between Warner and Discovery, and all heck has broken loose. The byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, episode 116. I'm Dave here with my buddy Chris, and we are excited to deliver to you another episode of the podcast where any merger does not mean a significant loss of content. In today's episode, we are going to be breaking down the big developments of the Warner Discovery merger and all the news that came down the pipeline because of that. Is this a great move or a big old stinker? But first, as always, it's time for... All right, Chris, what's new in the nerd world? Well, it's been a couple of weeks. Um, we have recorded a couple episodes ahead of time. Um, but we recently, as of this recording, have lost um, one of the true nerd icons. And that's not an overstatement. It's not an exaggeration. Um, Michelle Nichols, uh, probably most famous for her work on the original Star Trek series, um, as Lieutenant Miyota Uhura has passed at the age of 89. And um, I typically have like a script and super organized with a news story, but I just wanted to like divulge myself from all of that and just like take a moment to just celebrate and honor the memory, the influence and the legacy of, of you know, Michelle Nichols, everything that she meant to so many people around the entire world and all of the people that she inspired. I mean, I, I encourage our listeners, if you haven't already, to do some background research, listen to interviews. Um, she famously um wanted to quit the show after the first season and pursue her dream of musical theater on Broadway and then she ran into nobody none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr at an NAACP event who revealed that he was a huge trekker and like it was the only show that he and, and Miss King would would allow their children to stay up and watch and and how influential it was because it wasn't just a black role or just a female role it was it was a truly equal role. And so that encouraged her to stay on and continue the show. And then after that, you know, the show's cancellation, she went on to work actually with NASA and recruit women and, and minorities into their space program and send people to space. Sally Ride was recruited to this program. Um, you know, the first black man in space was, was recruited through this program. And she was also a major influence to Dr. Mae Jemison, the first black woman in space. And, um, who actually showed up on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation in the 90s as well. So, I mean, like, just her lasting influence, the first interracial kiss um, on television is, is never-ending. And, and what's crazy is, like, she never stopped pushing boundaries and pushing progress for society as a whole. And so um, I know that there was some, some questionable... Um, some some questionable treatment by her family so I, i'm glad that um you know stan lee comes to mind with with that situation in the latter years so I'm, I'm glad that um 
she no longer has to suffer through that and um, that we can truly just sit back and, and celebrate the influence that she had on so, so many people. Yeah, I have I have mad love for the uh, original Trek series and uh, particularly when placed in the historical context of, you know, the 1960s and 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 what it meant to have a, a Star Trek show that was so forward looking that, you know, to aim to have as much representation and diversity as possible on, on a, a, a bridge crew in, in the mid 1960s as it did was, you know, incredible and say what you will about, you know, Roddenberry at the time and, and some, some of the questionable choices he made both then and later in life. But that, that sort of forward looking, um, it's just so cool. And, and so many of the, of that original crew, um, is, is so important to so many people, you know, Nimoy, uh, you know, uh, and, and of course, uh, Nichols. And so anytime we lose one of these, these trailblazers, you know, now, now that they're kind of falling one by one, it's, it's absolutely devastating. And so I'm, I'm a huge Nichelle Nichols fan and, and seeing her, um, you know, her light extinguished is is an incredibly sad day for nerds everywhere. I um I I wholeheartedly recommend that um, our listeners also, and, and we'll talk more about this later, Dave, in your nerd commendation. But um, Celia Rose Gooding, who is portraying uh, Lieutenant Uhura now on Strange New Worlds, wrote a beautiful, beautiful essay for the Hollywood Reporter, and I encourage um, folks to check that one out because this is it's a beautiful and fitting tribute as well. All right, Dave, um, your story involves one of my favorite video game publishers who has fallen on hard times as of late. Yeah, it appears that uh, Chinese conglomerate, I don't even want to call them like a video game publisher necessarily, but like more of a, a media company with you know investments and feelers in, in companies globally, Tencent, is uh, looking to expand its investment in Ubisoft. Um, so this uh, this company has you know feelers in all sorts of different companies. They already own five percent of Ubisoft's uh, of the Ubisoft company, and now that uh, Ubisoft is is struggling financially, um, and uh, you know has even fended off uh, just a few years ago, sort of a you know hostile takeover. It now looks that Tencent is looking to spend a little more than ten cents. You know the pun was coming, guys. Hey. Uh, to uh, further invest in the company. And they're so determined to make this happen, according to a, a Reuters report, that they're willing to pay uh, up to nearly $104 a share, which is more than double of what Ubisoft stock is currently worth. Um, and not just um, are they going that route, they're also trying to specifically go uh, after the stock owned by the Gilmot family, which uh, you know is the founding family of Ubisoft, and currently owns somewhere around fifteen percent of stock. Um, so uh, this company, you know, it's 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 kind of hard telling whether this is good or bad, <laughs> or what what this would mean. You know, I mean, there's always a, there's a lot of um, um, discussion, especially recently with like uh, you know stuff like services like TikTok and the like, and. And you know the the Chinese based companies that are involved with those, and how much influence um, the the Chinese government actually exerts on those kinds of companies. Um, 
And that that sort of question, you know, hovers over Tencent to some extent as well. And how much uh, that is going to impact, uh, you know, if they actually manage to have, you know, a significant stake in Ubisoft, how much that will change direction of of the French company. Um, It's been sort of a... I guess you could say like a fire sale in recent years with various companies buying various other video game companies. Microsoft in particular is, uh, you know, been rather quote unquote guilty of that. Uh, they're right now in the middle of an acquisition of, um, of Activision. And so, um, you know, there's been a lot of this kind of movement going on in the video game industry, and what that means long term is anybody's guess. Um, I'm, a, I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan of Ubisoft, maybe not for all the same reasons as many others are. You know, there's a lot of like, hey, you know, they have the Tom Clancy license, which is not really the most interesting thing to me. Um, I think some of the finest Ubisoft output ever was was their uh, their Rayman games, their Rayman revivals. Um, uh, Rayman Origins and Rayman Legend, and I sure wish that the company would be on better, um, in a better financial footing, so they could take risks like that and maybe give us another another two D Rayman game like that because they were absolutely fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is just sort of a a, a weird story in the seeing how uh, this this conglomerate is is you know kind of slowly buying into a whole bunch of these various global video game makers and what that might you know mean long term yeah it's really weird it, it feels like a, like an arms race of sorts like the proliferation of assets and and like just capitalism to the nth degree with with some of these video game developers uh, so I'm, I'm i'm right there with you i'm not sure what to make of this i know that um I know that Ubisoft has gotten themselves into hot water. I don't know what the commonality is for some of these video game developers to create these toxic workplaces and everything. Um, but, you know, Ubisoft is is one of my favorite developers simply because of the Assassin's Creed franchise. Historical fiction has always been one of my favorite genres. Uh, Alexandre Dumont is my all-time favorite author. Everything from Three Musketeers to Count of Monte Cristo. And just so the idea that you can play in those, you know, historically relevant time periods and completely immerse yourself, you know, storyline aside, it's just fascinating. Just the the initial concept has always grabbed me, even from a young age. Um, I, I'm right there with you on the Tom Clancy stuff. Some of those games are such a snooze. They were added to Game Pass and like they're not even worth the download space. Um, the one exception being the division and the division two, I think those are fascinating and, and, um, truly unique in their design and everything. A lot of the other ones feel like carbon copies of something like Fortnite or something of that nature. This PVP arena style gameplay just does not land with me. Um, but the division and division two specifically is one of my all time favorite games that has, um, significant replay value and, and they've really done well with with utilizing that game. So I'm just hoping that, that um, if anything, if nothing else, this gives, um, you know, a shot in the arm to, to Ubisoft to continue making content that I love. Yeah. I mean, that, that's sort of, I mean, the, the, the thriving hope I think right now among Ubisoft fans is just that the company gets to continue um, kind of as a, as a standalone entity and not be absorbed into various and sundry other Tencent holdings. So, uh, so here's hoping that that is not something that is on the horizon, Chris. 
All righty, folks, that's it for Nerd News. Stick around as we are getting ready to dive into the Warner Brothers Discovery merger and all the crap that is coming down the pipeline because of that for the nerd world. Um, it's quite uh, quite grim, folks, so stick around. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, nerd, welcome back. Uh, and it is finally time for this week's And a big talk it shall be, because, oh, brother, Warner Brothers and Discovery Media have completed its uh, merger, and, uh, oh boy, uh, have a lot of things changed at the company that uh, owns, among many uh, many other IPs, DC Comics. And so we have decided, Chris and I, that we're going to spend this episode diving into um, the three biggest screw-ups of this merger, uh, for each of us, and the three biggest things that uh, Warner Brothers Discovery hyphen Zaslav boogity boogity <laughs> company, whatever they're calling it these days, should actually be doing to uh, you know make some progress uh, with their IPs. Uh, so, uh, Chris, without further ado, what is the the, the first big screw up to you of the Warner Brothers Discovery merger? That's the discovery of it all. I mean, like, comparing these two... So so it looks like within the next year or so, they want to combine this all into one streaming platform, if I understand it correctly. Um, And maybe it's just my personal bias, but, like, the discovery of it all. Like, I, I truly did not know that Discovery had its own streaming platform. Like, that it... Beyond Shark Week, that it was in demand enough to like to warrant its own streaming platform and so it just feels like they're trying to water down something as i'm I'm, I'm gonna be honest i think hbo max is probably my favorite streaming platform and the amount of content that they have i think it even edges out something like netflix or disney plus like that's where i go for most of my content and then you're getting Discovery Plus and my HBO Max. It's just really, really strange. And um, it just, it's its a not so thinly veiled, like they're not really good about hiding the power hungry, like capitalism of it all. And like, you know, even with the mergers of something like 20th Century Fox into Disney and that acquisition, it wasn't as like, gross is this i guess is what i'm saying like it was it was much more seamless of a transition like hey by the way we've added you know the the x-men movies like who cares but i mean like you know they're now available on the disney plus and it was much more of an inclusive thing rather than we shall merge into one like i i'm not the least bit interested in discovery anything i'm sorry but yeah so it just feels like we're being ham-fisted into discovery of it all so the big problem here uh, with this whole notion of of merging these two streaming platforms is, um, you know, like if you use like HBO Max as the baseline, right, and then you just add the Discovery content to it as sort of a bonus thing, that that's fine. But but you know, some of the flags that have been sent up are very weird. So first of all, HBO Max appears to be kind of just going away. 
um, including a lot of the stuff that, you know, was original content specifically being produced for the platform. And, you know, more on that uh, later. Um, and so it is It is not sort of a seamless transition because from, from my understanding, they're going to start a whole new platform that is going to look and function completely differently from both HBO Max and Discovery, whatever that streaming service is called, Discovery Plus or whatever. Discovery minus, I don't know. Um, and... And so, and so we're getting this this brand new streaming service, which, by all indications, from hints dropped, is going to be um, is going to be more expensive. Um, and so now, people that are you know enjoying HBO Max are going to find themselves suddenly uh, paying significantly more for additional content that they're not really interested in. Um, and and that's definitely a problem. And you know, obviously we. We call this thing a situation, a merger, right? But is it really truly a merger? No, not really. It's more of a, a discovery buying Warner from AT&T. They're essentially in the lead of, of this whole you know, new company, merged company, whatever you want to call it. And, and that is a significant issue uh, because I don't think Discovery as a company has particularly proven that it's a very adept at managing IP and, and script the television. And, and we'll talk more about that later as well. So yeah, you know, being being having two different things that are sort of um, not, not necessarily in the same wheelhouse, sticking them together and then charging more for it is not going to make, I think, either fan base ultimately very happy. Um, and, and finally, I think there's also a huge question mark about how much of HBO Max is actually going to end up on this new uh, streaming platform, specifically the back catalog, because there's so many older classic movies, um, you know, si- significant um, a library of like old Looney Tunes cartoons, all of the stuff uh, that is not usually widely available in any other way is there on HBO Max. And it's not exactly clear if all of the stuff is going to make the transition over to this new streaming platform. Um, and that is going to be a sad day indeed, I think for uh fans of of you know older content yeah and 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 i'm just i don't want to come across as like some shill for for disney or anything but like i'm not understanding why we need it all in one platform because i and i don't know if the percentage ownership because i don't think disney owns like a hundred percent of hulu if, if my I, i've done research in the past if, if i remember correctly but they have you know, part of that bundle, Disney owns ESPN as well. And so they've got three separate streaming services. And they even like in some of the press releases, and I'll get to in a moment, is like they identify that they have different audiences for each of these platforms. Then why are you combining them all into one? It seems like a, a not so thinly veiled attempt to up discovery numbers and and remedy that via the popularity and the pull of of hbo max and then but because like you have in that disney plus bundle you get disney plus you've got hulu and you've got espn plus and they all have very different types of content and so it's just puzzling to me why we're forcing this all into one well, yeah, I mean, obviously, that's that's one of the bigger issues here. Um, you know, the thing is, too, that, uh, you know, as a 
as a person who's you know streamed quite a bit on HBO Max, I found myself overall pretty happy with the darn thing. I think the interface needed some work. Yeah, you know, it needed a, yes. a you know a redesign, and there there were some significant glitches based on which platform you were operating on. I remember what trying to watch you know. Um, um, a scripted series cold case several times and the whole thing just kind of froze up and crashed and I had to you know restart the app but those are sort of you know technical level things but like the offerings and the and you know how they rotated things through and the classic catalog HBO Max has been a very very solid uh, you know, player in the in the streaming uh, world, and in fact, you know, I know there were analysts just a year ago that were talking about how you know HBO Max is poised to perhaps you know dethrone Netflix at long last and and become you know the the biggest name in streaming, which is no small feat considering that Disney Plus is sitting right over there, exactly. you know. So and and then you take what is you know a a platform that is positioned to be you know the next big thing the top dog and you're like uh no we're gonna go ahead and fold here and we're gonna start you know over here fresh with a whole different slate of content and on top of that it's gonna be more expensive and yeah I I I, I sort of doubt the the business savvy of that decision I think also that. Um, another change for particularly in DC content can't, I, I, I think you run the risk of losing a lot of people going through another significant change like this. How many mergers can Warner Brothers survive? Um, you know, I think specifically about a show like Harley Quinn, which I, you know, I've, I've detailed to a great extent how much I think the world of it. But that started off on the ill-fated DC Universe app, which has now morphed into DC Universe Infinite, and that is strictly comics. And then that show migrated to HBO Max now, and now it's potentially going through another migration. Um, how many more times do we have to go through this? And and as we'll discover later uh, in our episode, and that is hoping that we actually will get another season mm-hmm. of Harley Quinn, because there are, there are some... Uh, ill-fated signs there as well all right dave we've rambled enough on my first point what is this is this is the straw that broke the camel's back i think and started this whole whirlwind of nonsense yeah so um obviously we have uh, you know a a batgirl movie that was coming um and uh, there was a lot of excitement i think uh you know in the ether there among uh, dc comics fans um the the movie looked uh, to be pretty darn interesting, and even if you weren't a hundred percent convinced by some of the behind the scenes moves, uh, there was a lot to commend. That we would you know see J.K. Simmons playing Commissioner Gordon again, and he did a decent job in his couple of appearances back in the day. It's going to be Brendan Fraser's big uh, you know comeback, so and and potentially big screen comeback as the villain Firefly, and we were going to see a very ancient Michael Keaton reprise his role <laughs> as Batman. Um, a geriatric Batman, something to be excited for. But dude, you know, uh, I, I jest, but there were a lot of things going on here that uh, that were really exciting. Least of all, um, you know, we had uh, Leslie Grace, the breakout star from in, in the Heights, right? And she was going to be Batgirl. Um, and on top of that, we had a a suit. Uh, revealed that was extremely um, faithful to the comic books, particularly the Burnside era of the character. Um, and then, you know, we have uh, Adid El Arbi and Bilal Fala di- uh, directing this sucker, and and they are fantastic. You know, I mean, there's 
there's no way that you can say that these this is a great you know that this is not a great team coming together to make this movie as because of covid and various shutdowns and everything apparently the the movie which had received a 70 million dollar budget and was originally slated um to be released uh, as an hbo max uh, exclusive um the you know the whole budget ballooned upward to about 90 million um and still you know still not you know a hugely expensive superhero movie there was even some rumbling before the merger that they were going to go ahead and give this a shot on the big screen um and so, um, you know, s- since the initial announcement that this uh, movie is now going to be shelved completely and forevermore, um, it now uh, also came to light that uh, initial uh, test screenings of the movie tracked in the 60s as far as audience, um, you know, enjoyment of the movie, which is similar to the upcoming Black Adam movie, which is not shelved. So I think based on the... Um, based on what we know about the people involved in making the movie and based on what we know about now that the audience tracking, um, it, it appears to be that this was not a qualitative decision, right? This is a movie that was financed under the previous regime, basically by a completely different company, if you want to put a, not too fine right. a point on it. And so now the move is, instead of releasing this and trying to make money off of it, we're going to go ahead and cancel it and take a tax write-off, which is going to apparently save them somewhere in the 15 to $25 million range. Now, I would like to think that if they would have bypassed uh, HBO Max and put this on the big screen as rumblings were actually going for, they would have probably made significantly more money than that. But rather than take that risk and put additional money into promotion, advertisement, all that, they decided to take a knee here and say, no, we're not going to do this. We're just going to go ahead and shelve it. And now just to be clear, unless this sucker leaks and is pirated like crazy, uh, is very, very, very uh, grim outlook for Batgirl. Uh, there is absolutely no reason to believe that they'll ever be able to release this because they're doing it as a tax write-off. It's being canceled as a tax write-off. They can't make a profit off of something that they received a significant tax break for not releasing. So this this thing is, for all intents and purposes, gone. Completely and utterly gone. And it is the most questionable decision so far, I think, that this new company has made. And I think there's a couple of... Uh, things that we need to note here right and that is this is this would have been uh, the first you know uh, major motion picture that is based on barbara gordon batgirl it would have been you know the first big appearance of her on on the big screen period um you have an incredibly uh you know a diverse cast you have a, a diversity behind the scenes in, in the in the director's chair um and and somehow uh, that does not seem to gel quite with the vision of the new Warner Brothers Discovery leadership, which is something I will talk more about as sort of, you know, we, we get further into the show as far as like questionable decisions going on behind the scenes. But it is, I think, telling in a lot of ways that uh, Shazam Fury of the Gods is coming, that, you know, Black Adam is coming, and that the Flash is for all intents and purposes still coming despite all the behind the scenes drama surrounding star Ezra Miller. So in, in short, um, this is baffling and it's very, very difficult not to ascribe some, some non flattering motives behind this cancellation. Um, 
yeah, and it's, I find this whole situation extremely baffling. And, and I stand by the prediction that if this movie would have been released big screens to theaters, even with a smaller budget like that, and even with only a modest advertising budget, I'm convinced this sucker would have recouped cost at the very least. At the very least, and considering that this is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a new company, and the brunt of the financing was borne by its previous iteration, this would have all been this would have all been gravy for Warner Brothers Discovery. So, WTF? Yeah, well, that's that's the title that I put on our Byword Big Talk in the folder was WTFWB. Like, it, it doesn't make sense to me outside of. Diana. Now, even me as a relative newcomer to DC content, I can tell from the outside looking in, or as the new kid on the block, that outside of Diana, Wonder Woman, Barbara Gordon, Dave, would you agree with this assessment that Barbara Gordon is probably the most popular female character outside of Diana? Well, popular, you know, in the comic books, I, I think you might go back and forth a little bit. But I think in pop culture, absolutely, it's, it's like when we're talking about wider... Like recognizable um, names. Name it recognition. is easily, easily one of the most recognizable characters. I mean, we're still talking about a character that memorably had a role even in, in the old 60s Batman television right. show. Um, you know, is there is there's high recognition for for Barbara Gordon uh, for for that version of Batgirl, absolutely for for that, that character period. And I and I think even you know with the, the the tried and true method of shoving Batman into everything from from DC and Warner and everybody involved is at least this is like a, a varied approach on that. It's still bat centric. And so that's still kind of like a stepping off point to introducing different content with, with still like a bat family character involved. Um, it's just wild to me. And, and I'm just thinking back like at a, as a macro perspective and just the PR nightmare that this is coming in as a consumer, like just <laughs> you have for all intents and purposes, a serial abuser, it's now new reports are saying that Ezra Miller has has Ezra Miller has started a cult, an official cult. And so that is not enough to cancel the Flash movie, but Batgirl has no chance. Um you'd be hard pressed to convince me that a theatrical release of this film with the strong following that Barbara Gordon has as a character would not have made a good amount of money, at least a couple hundred million. You, I, I refuse to believe it. And so this just looks really, really bad. It looks like a PR nightmare. The new, the new bosses come in and cancel all the old stuff, and we're going to have law and order, and we're going to be incredibly frugal. We're going to reset everything. We're going to change all the things. But that's all fine and dandy, but like the ideas that they have set in place are not exactly promising. And you have this movie that so many people were excited for, for a multitude of reasons. Not only is Barbara Gordon going to be on the big screen for the first time, if not ever, then the first, you know, for the first time in a good long time, you have JK Simmons, who is, you know, as a draw in and of himself, you have the well-deserved campaign behind Brendan Fraser, making a return to Hollywood after like the horrendous treatment that he received, um, you know, like the the immaculate 
show that is Doom Patrol, which don't get your fingers crossed more on that later. Uh, it's just it's just bad. Like it's not good. Like it truly, it truly, in my opinion, shows how just tone deaf that these corporate suits above all else are with the content that they have. And I'll be I'll be more than happy to say this. This would be Barbara Gordon's first uh, big screen debut because the Batgirl featured <clears throat> uh, in Batman and Robin, uh, played by Alicia Silverstone, was actually not Barbara Gordon. Uh, was actually uh, a Barbara that was supposedly the niece of Alfred. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. So this this would have been a first. Yeah. All right, Chris. Let's go ahead and get into the uh, the the second of your what the heck moments. Uh, it's just when you think that gender reveals couldn't get any more stupid. Um, for me, this is just another indication that Zaslav and company are just completely tone deaf on on with regards to like modern audiences. And they have such an antiquated outlook on what audiences want, what they enjoy. Um, so they had this side-by-side presentation of their views of HBO Max versus Discovery+. Plus. Okay, and so I'm reading directly here. HBO Max, male skew, scripted, lean-in, appointment viewing, home of fandoms. And Discovery+, Plus is female skew, unscripted, lean-back. Comfort viewing, home of genredoms, because that's a word. And so just forcing yourself into this binary thought of content is just so incredibly limiting. Why do you want to hold yourselves hostage by these self-constructed edifices instead of just leaning into the strengths of what you have? And maybe there are, you know, loose ramifications here or, or or loose constructs maybe but like creating such a strong sentiment for what you're going to do in the future but then you're still forcing these two things to coerce into one streaming platform it's just completely and hilariously toned up to me the hilarious thing the most hilarious thing to me at least is is how the male skewing scripted female skewing unscripted so so the argument is that females like unscripted materials and males like scripted materials that is going to be a significant bit of news for my wife i'm gonna have to tell her she's no longer she's no longer allowed to watch scripted tv which is i think pretty much the only thing she watches um yeah that is you know did you say what did you say that they said the discovery is the home of geek what Oh, genre dumb. Genre dumb. Gen- yeah, no, I think I think their genre is dumb. I think that's the whole genre of of, of the people behind the scenes. There, it is. It is absolutely mind blowing to me that in our in the year of our Lord twenty twenty two, that we <laughs> still have a major American company making you know like sweeping generalizations completely based on somebody's reproductive organs, like. Dude, should you not know better at this point? And if you're planning on making significant amounts of money, don't you think that you should be sure to, to you know, not put people into these neat little boxes? I mean, one of the things I learned very quickly hanging out on social media, which, you know, we've, you know, chronicled 
multiple times I was not the biggest participant of, one of the things I noticed very quickly is that some of the most outspoken, some of the most knowledgeable, and some of the most passionate people in the nerd world uh, are women. And and so this idea that like um, fandoms are are male skewing or something is absolutely the most ridiculous thing I've heard today, and and I can I can tell you that this is going to affect their bottom line. You are exactly one hundred percent correct in saying that this is antiquated thinking. You know what's wild to me is last time I checked, Sex in the City calls HBO Max home. I did not know that that was an exclusively male audience. Um, and I did not know that Discovery Plus, which, you know, is probably biggest claim to fame is Shark Week. I didn't realize that that was an exclusively female audience. News to me. Yeah, and it's mind-blowing, isn't it? <laughs> We've learned a lot today again. All right, Dave, you hinted at this before, but I'm right there with you. So, you know, one of the things that I always like to do is peek as much behind the curtain as I humanly can. I try to understand some of these decision makings, you know, whether that be uh, politicians or major companies, like I'm trying to at least get myself somewhat in the headspace of what's happening. And uh, I should not have when it comes to WarnerBrothersDiscovery.com.org. So... Apparently, the the new chief executive officer of Warner Brothers uh, Discovery Inc. is a gentleman by the name of David Zaslav, who is apparently uh, not not um, smart when it comes to how to run a company, which does not bode very well for Warner, I don't think. Um, so one of the things that uh, he, according to Bloomberg, was telling friends of his in Hollywood is that he would hire quote the best people he could find gender and racial diversity while a factor would not be his top priority. Um, according to a Bloomberg report, uh, it was very clear that gender and racial diversity were not a, uh, you know, priority for him because uh, discovery has apparently uh, six seats on the company's board and Discovery and under Zaslav's leadership appointed all white male directors. Um, they were also kind enough to then go ahead and fire Warner Brothers chief Anne Sarnoff, one of the highest ranking women in Hollywood, without filling her role, um, and replaced Warner Media's heads of communications and finance with white men from Discovery. And this is really kind of what I'm talking about when I'm saying that Discovery is in the driver's seat and David Zaslav is in the driver's seat. And he's just bringing as many as many white dudes, old white men over. I mean, it's starting to look like Congress over there. They're just yeah. trying to bring as, ma- as many old white dudes over from Discovery as possible, who then put out a, a graphic like a, what you uh, were referencing just a moment ago that then tell women what they want. Um, and so if you're going to run a company that is trying to uh, create content uh, that appeals to the maximum number of people, um, and tries to make the maximum dollars possible, which is, you know, ultimately what a, uh, you know, a, a company's job is, is, is to just maximize profits. If that's really what they're trying to do, then uh, maybe they need to get some more diverse viewpoints on that board of directors of theirs. Because I have a funny feeling if there were a couple more women in the room when they made the decision to axe Batgirl, uh, that that might have not gone down as easily as it did. Because it's very easy when you have what, four movies coming for sure for, that were created still under the previous regime. Three of them are male-led and one of them is female-led. 
and the female-led one is the one that is canceled. Um, yeah, I think that's a problem. And, and I think this is going to come around and bite them in the butt if they're not willing to diversify a little bit the viewpoints uh, that are being represented on that on that board of directors, Chris. Yeah, and we, and we detailed this uh, a great deal, but both of us being straight white men, you know, as, as, as well as our intentions might be, we still have blind spots. And so filling that room with an echo chamber of old white maleness is only going to exacerbate that problem. And it, it, it's no surprise how shockingly tone deaf all of these approaches are. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's incredibly wild. I, I'm just speechless at this point. Like in 2022, that that this is still the approach with a new regime. You really think that this is going to be um, uh, an effective strategy moving forward? No, apparent. Apparently, they do. Um, and look, you know, as you mentioned just a second ago, we're we're just a couple of straight white dudes that that really you know love nerdy stuff, and you know. Um, <sighs> I think what it comes down to is this, um, while acknowledging my own old nerdy whiteness, I'm, I'm also just going to stand here and say that I like diversity, uh, diverse voices. I like uh, diverse viewpoints in my media because ultimately one of the fun things of being exposed to, to, you know, content is that I want things that I'm not familiar with, you know? I, I do not want the stuff that is, you know, that I know best constantly represented in my media because at some point that gets a little boring, you know? I, I, I know what I am, but I like, you know, learning about, you know, different cultures and, and different religions and different, you know, regions in the world and their history and all of those kinds of things. And and so diversity in, in, in content creation is incredibly important because you don't just especially if you're part of the majority, you don't just want to see constantly the same viewpoint reflected back at you. You want to see new and different. That That's, you know, what, what catches your attention in content. And so, you know, here we are, you know, once again, a major, a major Hollywood company is going to be, you know, an, an echo chamber. And, and that's just, it's the DC Comics of it all that's frustrating me, Chris, is that this is the company mm-hmm. in charge of DC yes. Comics now and, and all of those characters that I love and enjoy so much. And this is their viewpoint through which they're going to filter all this. And and that's troubling. And I can't, I can't imagine how you must feel as a lifelong DC fan because me, be, you know, as a casual lifetime viewer of DC content um, and, and really getting into reading the comics and the content and the source material for the first time ever. Like I'm falling in love with these characters and it's heartbreaking at the onset. I can't imagine how you must feel. And, and, you know, uh, on, on what you were saying about diversity and seeking out different viewpoints, I think that's our perspective as historians and fans of history. You know, what's the first thing we tell our students is primary sources go straight to the source. You want to teach about Islam? You're going to have to study the Quran. You know, one of the proudest episodes that, that we've put out for me, from my perspective, is our recent episode with Maria and about Ms. Marvel, because it's great that you and I, as, as white dudes, love Kamala Khan. That's great. But what does it mean from someone who's actually a Pakistani Muslim woman? Like, that's a much more interesting perspective than us just rambling about how much we love this kid. Exactly, yeah. 
All right, so uh, your your final uh, WTF moment, Chris? What you got? Okay, so just the sorting. I'm 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 kind of OCD. You wouldn't know that by look, looking at my office or my classroom. Um, but at least in terms of of you know my file folders, I'm kind of a nerd OCD about organizing things. And so this global powerhouse that that they put out on part of this Investors Day, whatever this was. They put franchises, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Superman as separate entities. And that's just like a serious fault, like at its core. Like they didn't say that DC was an iconic franchise or anything. They put that in the brand, so at least they have that. But separating that, that truly shows you that if you want to construct a connected universe with all these characters, like why are they separate? That's like it, it, it just shows at the onset that they don't know what they're going to do. And the future is not looking very bright for our DC characters moving forward because there's no cohesiveness there. Yeah. And, you know, they've 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 put out some um, statements that are talking about, you know, looking for somebody to lead, you know, uh, the creatively overall you know, the the DC universe in movies, kind of like Feige does over with Marvel and that they're wanting to put a 10-year plan together and all that sounds, you know, nice on paper. But uh, when you're already that tone deaf that you don't understand that, you know, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman are of the same franchise, not of different franchises. Um, yeah, that that's a problem, Chris. I think, um, I think the world of Heather Antos and... Um... She, I think she had the probably the most apt description of this, all of it, um, after the Batgirl debacle. She said, I'm quoting her tweet here, Warner Brothers wants so badly to be where Marvel Studios is, but it lacks the patience and understanding of its characters to ever get there. It wants billion-dollar hits without three, making $300 million hits first, end quote. They so badly want to jump the shark and get to an Avengers Infinity War, an Avengers Endgame type of box office, but you're completely neglecting the fact, as we've said before on this show, Avengers, the first Avengers in 2012, was the end of Phase 1 that had what, five or six films in it. You can't, and they, they screwed the pooch before when they jumped to Justice League like one or two films in. You have Batman being introduced in a Superman movie that even divorcing yourself about the quality or lack thereof of that film, you're introducing Batman as an adversary in a bad karaoke version of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. And then the exactly next movie is Justice League. But the first half of it is spent resurrecting Superman because you killed him off already. Like, you want to just, like copy and paste and take the cliff notes version of Marvel's success without doing the work, the hustle, the work ethic, the grind that Kevin Feige and company have done. It's it's absolutely mind-boggling to me that they can that be that out of touch. Yeah, I got I got nothing to add. That that's that sums it up pretty darn well. Uh Dave, I'm furious about your last one, so let's vent together. I think it's I'm just I'm 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 exhausted. <laughs> at this point in the episode so i'm just going to keep this really brief um so they they've started basically now also making cuts and kids and animation content uh that warner is creating which is one of the things that i think we can all agree um 
Warner has always been exceedingly good at, uh, whether that is, you know, superhero stuff, Batman, the animated series, Superman, the animated series, Batman beyond all that stuff, justice league, um, or whether that is, you know, non-superhero fare, you know, I, I memorably always have to think of Animaniacs from my childhood and how even that, you know, made a comeback not too long ago and was still, you know, very sharp and fun. Um, you know, Warner has a, a all the way to the Looney Tunes, just this incredibly long, rich tradition of animation and kids content that is that is truly excellent. And it and it came you know, uh, sort of first shot across the bow, you already knew something was up. Uh, there was a, a, a movie, a Scooby-Doo-based movie, theater movie, major motion picture thing a few years ago called Scoob. And uh, it was getting a sequel, which was, by the way, co-written by Paul Dini. And they they uh, they axed it. Um, and it was pretty much done, of my understanding. It's close to complete uh, in a similar um, boat as uh, Batgirl. And now there's uh, more and more rumblings coming that various uh, other content that they are creating uh, in kids uh, programming and animation is going to uh, get whittled down with major cuts coming in the budget for those departments, which obviously is going to mean significantly, um, you know, reduced output um, and probably qualitatively a jump, a a leap downwards as well. Um, So, you know, again, here, here is a company, you know, not discover, not uh, understanding its own history um, and the excellence, you know, that that has been established in animation and kids programming under the Warner name, and just goes ahead and drops all that, and it's just like stupid. It's it, it's wild to me um, that the one area that DC has run laps around Marvel and has had Marvel in a chokehold for decades is animation. I mean, when you stack up the 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 giants that DC and and Warner Brothers has in its repertoire, when you think of things like Batman the animated series, um when you think of things like Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, now I can say firsthand Batman Beyond, it, it's it's truly laughable the competition. Uh, as much as I love X-Men, the animated series, as much as I love Wolverine and the X-Men, as much as I love Spider-Man, the animated series, it's laughable, the side-by-side comparison with DC versus Marvel in terms of animation. Young Justice as well. And there is such a prejudice amongst even consumers, but even more so executives, when it comes to animation. And it's truly so so self-limiting such a self-induced wound shooting yourself in the foot when you don't give credence to this i think of you know academy award-winning director of films like parasite snowpiercer bong joon ho who said once you uh, you know in his acceptance speech for parasite in the uh, the oscar um once you overcome the one inch tall barrier of subtitles you'll be introduced to so many more amazing films and the same kind of prejudice that people have for foreign language films and not wanting to read um I put subtitles on English films for Pete's sake, but you know, this, this prejudice that we have, and you know, people are not watching something like star Wars, Clo- the clone wars or, or star Wars rebels. You're missing out on some of the best star Wars content of all time. And you're truly, truly missing out. Just imagine like not wanting to go to the Louvre or infuse some of the best works of art in all of human history. This is how I feel about animation. The greatest superhero movie I contend 
a broken record on this, the greatest superhero movie that we have ever had is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Now, the comics, unfortunately, uh, not so much. But that is a perfect film. No notes, no exception, no edits, no rewrites, nothing. It's a perfect film. It encompasses so many things that are core to that character, and it cannot be altered in any way to improve its quality. It's a perfect film. And the people who still view animation and children's centric content, kid centric content through that lens are laughably short sighted. And so, I mean, I got I got nothing else other than don't worry, Dave, because we're fixing these clowns here in just a second. All right, let's 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 go ahead and jump in on that, man. What is your the first thing that uh, you know would would fix this Warner Brothers Discovery situation in your book? Listen, public school teachers telling longtime Hollywood executives how to do their job. I mean, that's pretty sad. Um, but my first thing is, like I said before, HBO Max is easily my favorite streaming platform right now. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. I'm watching the rehearsal right now and. I know it's not a nerd accommodation, but it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. If you liked Nathan for you, one of my all-time favorite comedy shows, Nathan Fielder is a comedic genius. The rehearsal, there's no way that I could explain it. Just watch it because I need someone to discuss how crazy that show is with me. Um, But HBO Max has like a ridiculous amount of incredibly original content. Like you've got the entire back catalog of HBO. You've got The Sopranos. You've got all these amazing original content shows, Sex in the City for their exclusively male audience, apparently. Um, it, it's it's absolutely insane to me that it's not it's it's not particularly close um, for me in regards of content. As much as I love Marvel, I'm a fanboy through and through. But in a side by side comparison with Netflix, Disney Plus, all the other streaming platforms, it's not close. HBO Max has the strongest amount of content for me original content and you have to lean into that harley quinn is a darn near perfect show lean into that don't cancel it just because it's freaking animation and you don't get it your 48 year old white self doesn't get it lean into your strengths your original content listen to your consumers they're telling you what they want with their views with their money with their pocketbooks Lean into your strengths, your original content. Doom Patrol is a fantastic, amazing show. Okay? You have great original content. Some of it is a miss. Titans is not a good show. And a Diop is fantastic. But Titans as a whole, not a great show. But the rest of them, vast majority of your original content on HBO Max is great. Lean into that. Flex your muscles and keep going. Yeah, so uh, in in short, uh, 100% agreed. HBO Max is a fantastic uh, platform. Uh, we've chronicled that earlier in the episode already, and we definitely should, uh, you know, keep that around in some capacity and keep putting out those HBO Max originals for crying out loud. Um, you know, e- even if you know you make a qualitative decision that maybe Titans isn't very good, fine, get rid of that, but don't get rid of the good stuff. Don't get rid of Doom Patrol. You know, don't get rid of some of the stuff that is resonating with your audience. You're one hundred percent correct. Um, and you know, whatever they end up launching is just going to be called like Warner Discovery or HBO Discover HBO or some such crap. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. going to be some really. We just have to get that Discovery brand in there. They're still not thinking 
like uh, the CEOs and, and board of a new company, they're still trying to you know ram their old company down our throats. I will say, uh, if I read correctly, that they did cancel Riverdale and Gotham or whatever that show was called. Uh, what is it, Gotham Knights? So at least that's a silver lining because that was a terrible idea. And, and, a, and a terrible trailer. So oh, bad. So bad. <laughs> All right, Dave, I'm excited to talk to you about this, about your first fix, because I started, as of this recording, the first three episodes of the Netflix series. And um, it's, a resounding, it's a resounding yes for me as your strategy from last week. I think there's a lot to learn uh, from Neil Gaiman's Sandman, uh, not just in the kind of stories it tells, not not just for how it uh, depicts diverse groups. Um, and I've not checked out the television show all that much yet, but I'm rereading the comic book in anticipation. And um, from everything that I've read from people online, what they're saying about adaptation, I think this is the template. So naturally, of course, you know, it's, it's happening on Netflix. Uh, <laughs> but if, if you're going to uh, take a very specific uh, approach to adaptations, this this is the way to go. Number one, try to get people involved that, that either have uh, written the storyline originally in the comic books as consultants or created the original characters or at the very least have a mad love for the IP. Two, don't be afraid to mix things up where it feels appropriate as long as it matches up with the original intent of the story or where it can make some improvements. One of the things that is so cool about Game and Sandman is even though it, you know, started publishing in the 80s it is so very inclusive you know with the kind of characters it includes one of the early storylines you know deals with with uh, you know an lgbtq couple um there is a, a very very um popular trans character that pops up and we're, we're talking about you know um a a comic book that's now well over 30 years old you know so you know a Make sure that you have people involved that know and or love the property. B, don't shy away from leaning into those kinds of diverse strengths. Um, you know, and 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 C, just you know, put your money where your mouth is, and and you know, make make these kinds of properties happen. Because Sandman, although hugely acclaimed within the comic book world, is not exactly that much of a known entity outside of comics, right? So if you take uh, something like that, you know, don't. And I'm saying this as a general Superman fan, but don't just worry about the Supermans and Batmans of the world, but go after some of those uh, those IPs in your library that may be very well known and loved within the comic book community and that you know represent a a surefire investment to bring it to a major audience i i predict at this point that i think the sandman adaptation is going to be very very popular in the long run um whether netflix decides to you know continuously renew it or not is another problem because hey we're talking about netflix here but i think it's it's going to um bring what made Sandman so great as a comic book to to a much much larger audience, and so yeah, Sandman so far not just a comic book, but even now the adaptation gets it, you know. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that property. And and if they had any kind of brains, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery's board would be sitting around looking at this and saying, okay, you know, what about this resonated with the original audience in comic books? How does that translate into uh, mass 
market appeal with the adaptation? And what did it take for the adaptation to capture that beloved quality? And, and what it always, always, always does take is original author, original artist, or, or people, even if original artist and writer are no longer around, people who have a mad love and understanding for that property. So Sandman, to me, is the, is the blueprint. Yeah, and, and I know I don't want to seem disingenuous because we said earlier, enough with the old white guys, but like back up the Brinks truck and, and, and recruit Gaiman specifically, like if you can afford him. <laughs> but like, I, I think you, you, you nailed it when, you know, with the comic itself, and I'll talk about this um, spoilers, but next week's nerd commendation of this show is Gaiman in, Gaiman in particular seems like one of those guys who just gets it and is not, he, he's willing to evolve with the times. In a world of William Shatner's and unfortunately Chris Claremont's, as we discovered this past week as of this recording, they never evolved with the times. And as progressive as they seemed back in the day, they kind of just stayed there in the past. Shatner seemingly stuck in the 60s, Claremont in the 80s, and they're bitter old men now. Gaiman has evolved with the times, and even just through those first three episodes that I've viewed, they've gender-swapped roles, they have race-swapped roles, and it is for the strength of the storytelling. And it is a, it's, it's an incredibly relevant 2022 product, but again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, because I still have seven episodes to view, but I think it takes that kind of perspective to connect with modern audiences because we're we're not in the stone ages anymore and it takes that type of outlook on things to really make a connection. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm what I'm driving at. So, you know, you you get me, Chris. <laughs> All right, so what is your second fix for the situation? Well, you hinted at this just a moment ago, but make us care about the obscure characters. I think the crowning achievement in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, and Kevin Feige and company is, for God's sake, Dave, we love a freaking anthropomorphic tree and raccoon. Come on, Ant-Man is a box office hit who's getting his third film. One of the campiest Marvel characters, Thor, just had his fourth film with plans for a fifth, maybe a sixth. Now, those, no, some of those aren't obscure characters, but I mean, Marvel can really just make you care about C and D list characters, and, and so much so that they've got stan accounts on social media because people care about these characters that are introducing on the big screen for the first time. It can't all be, and I know that, you, you know, we said we want, you know, the, the Holy Trinity of DC on the big screen, but like, we want Nubia. We want Martian Manhunter. We want Hawkgirl. We want Jessica Cruz. We want more than one green. We can't even get freaking Green Lantern on the screen again after that debacle of a film. We want Jon Stewart. Probably the best Green Lantern, arguably. Forget favorite, probably the best one. If you're honest with yourself, it's probably Jon Stewart. We can't even get characters like that that are mainstream DC characters because they keep shooting themselves in the foot. And so if you get detail-oriented people who love these characters, let them tell their stories and back away. Like, you, you've got you've to lean into the content. 
And I think I think Kevin Feige even said that in a Reddit post of like truly just loving the IP, loving these characters, and the rest will take care of itself. And so this is where we can shortcut a little bit because that was literally my next point is yeah. get people who love the IP to write and direct, not business pencil pushers. You're exactly right. When somebody comes, you know, in with honesty and and a love for the characters, then it doesn't matter if they're making a Superman movie or a movie of the question. You know, yes. it, it doesn't matter. It, there's there's going to be there's going to be something on the screen that's going to resonate with fans. So. <sighs> At this point, just, you know, for Crown Out Loud, just, just stop getting people who don't have mad love for these characters who or who come to the table thinking that they have to modernize them or reinvent them or improve them in some way. There's a reason that some of these IPs have lasted since the 1930s for crying out loud. They are beloved already. There's already something there that resonates. They don't need to be completely put through the ringer i'm 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 side-eyeing Zack snyder just a little bit here because i always got the impression that he had a certain kind of story he wanted to tell and the characters of dc were sort of ancillary to that rather than coming to the table with a mad love for the characters as they are and so to me that is what i'm looking for and i think that's one of the things that marvel does well can we critique marvel and some of the things it does absolutely does it sometimes lean way too hard into humor absolutely does it not let the dramatic moments sit absolutely did it take way too long for them to diversify the kind of movies they're making you betcha but at least it feels like the people making these movies love these characters and that has to be point zero that has to be the starting point yeah and i say this i was hoping i was hoping we get through the entire episode without the s word but alas um <laughs> you know uh, i had to <laughs> but um as i say this as a mutant fan as a member of the mutant society please learn from our mistakes with regards to filmmaking please please learn from our mistakes it's famously been chronicled that the directors of all those X-Men franchises truly did not care about the characters they were working with. So much so that they would just change characters that were cast on set while producing the film, while shooting scenes, they would just change characters. There was, there was precious little with regards to accuracy towards the characters to their core. This is, you know, the company that took one of the big powerhouses and the greatest successes of X-Men, the animate series and rogue and turned to into a, a whimpering emo kid, you know, and, and completely stripped her of all agency and all identifiable characteristics. Um, I just want to say, I just want to say that MCU rogue, whenever she may premiere, better keep her hands off of Carol Danvers. Okay. I don't need that whole comic book storyline. Don't you go draining my Carol. I like I like Captain Marvel too much for that. Hands off. Uh, but yeah, please learn from those mistakes and don't just make it up as you go along, please. So uh, your your last point, I think, is actually going to be a little more controversial than you think. <laughs> well, I honestly don't know, but I, I say take the success of Battinson and Reeves as Batman and just make that a fresh start for the universe because I guess that's the 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 closest emergency the emergency pull lever that is closest within grasp you know that's the last bit of dc film content that i enjoyed 
And so I'm saying take that and, and run with it. But, you know, I'm not exactly convinced. I can be persuaded. You know, the thing is that 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 is not necessarily a bad idea. I just I'm not convinced that uh, Pattinson and particularly Matt Reeves are necessarily on board with, you know, sharing their movies with a larger DC universe. I think there is something very, you know, isolated standalone over in their own corner. And by the way, do we have to worry about the Batman sequel? Like, is this still going to happen? Like, I'm I'm worried about this. Because I, I I think you know if they're already you know throwing around stuff like ten year plan and long term strategy and all that stuff, you know they're gonna want a Batman, you know they're gonna want a Superman. They're not gonna want you know these multiple different versions. And I think I'm a little worried about that. But um, the Batman is one of my favorite versions of the character in a, in a you know in quite a while and 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 potentially besides the animated one potentially ever because i love the 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 slow deliberate um detective thing that is happening in this movie i love the, how how it's returning the character to the roots in film noir rather than being you know like i want a little less superhero in my batman and a little more detective yeah. you know i i just i like that about the character that's what originally drew me to the character and so um, that, that's one of the reasons why, why I love this version of Batman so much. So I'm really hoping that that doesn't go away. <laughs> this is probably my big worry. Um, but, you know, like I'm okay with them starting over fresh even if they have to. Right, you know, right. as long as, as long as they're willing to leave the Batman over here or some kind of alternate universe Earth take two, or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and continue making those movies. Like, I'm not opposed to that. I think what scares me much more is, as we've already discussed, is that they're looking to, you know, have some kind of shortcut, right? I mean, they're looking for a shortcut. They want to go Marvel level as fast as possible. And so what what would be the simplest shortcut to take? You take the people who were already there, you know? So let's bring Henry Cavill back as Superman. and, And part of me would love that. But part of me also doesn't want to have to deal with the incessant toxicity of the, the the Snyder bots coming out of the woodwork saying it means Zack Snyder's coming back. You know, you bring Ben Affleck back as Batman. That's a quick shorthand, you know. But is that necessarily the right move? If you're really trying to do something different and new, probably not. But again, you know, they're trying to take shortcuts. Um, and and that is that is going to be a problem. So um yeah, I just I just want a good you know, good DC universe set of movies. You know, I just really do. That's that's what I want. Um, does if that means jumping off of the Batman as a starting off point, I'm okay with that. That doesn't mean though that a Superman movie has to look like the Batman. Right. It just means that you know, similarly to how Matt Reeves came in and said, "Hey, I understand this character from this level. Let's go ahead and try to make a movie out of that." I I want somebody to come in and say, "Okay, this is how I understand Superman. Let's go ahead and make a movie out of that." You know what I mean? Um, that should be very different movies. Yeah, and I don't know, just like off the top of my head, I don't know that, I don't think that the Batman lends itself necessarily to a shared universe type of of, of environment. Um, I think you would have to really work hard to, I mean, like, just look how tonally different Batman and Superman individual comics are. You'd have to, like, get someone who truly identif- is able to identify the quintessential elements of Metropolis and the world of Clark Kent um, if you wanted to go that route um, 
I'm also not completely devoid of like cutting it off whole cloth and starting a new. I just don't know how well that can be done at this point with the 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 mess and the muck that we have. Um, but yeah, Dave, I'm interested to, to dive into your last fix because I'm interested to see what exactly this ambiguous notion is. Yeah, so the the company has already made a statement that they have a ten year plan and that they want to make you know big spectacle movies. That every one of their DC movies has to be a ginormous blockbuster level thing. Um, and of course, what they're looking to do is, you know, they don't want a Batgirl movie that costs ninety million to make. They want, uh, you know, they want a, a Batman movie that costs two hundred fifty, three hundred million to make. You know, that that's what we're talking about here. They want they want these ginormous blockbusters. But I think they are underestimating the damage that has been done to the various properties in um, in the mainstream audience. Like when I went to see when I went to see Man of Steel. Um, my wife tagged along and she was like, well, you know, it was all right. And then I dragged her back to, you know, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. <laughs> Did you have lawyers? Did you have lawyers on the phone after that? <laughs> uh, well, um, my wife just looked at me afterwards and said, I don't think I'm going to do none, another one of these. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and my wife, although she has some nerdy tendencies, is not like you know hardcore die in the wool, died in the wool comic book nerd like I am, you know. And so I was, I keep going back, you know, hoping for better. I kept going back, you know, hoping for the movies I've been looking for, you know. But I, I think, I think a lot of these properties have been have been hurt in the public perception. There is this sense now, and I hear this all the time, even when I'm talking to like, you know my students it's like they ask are you marvel or dc and i say i'm dc and they're like really dc like it's a da- it's a damaged it's a damaged brand in the public perception so you are you do not need to come roaring out of the woods hoping for a billion dollar movie you need to start restoring some some faith in the brand you need to put out some good quality movies even if they're smaller scale even if they're more um you know, modestly budgeted, as long as you're willing to tell a good story and try to earn back the trust of the general audience. Um, you know, I, I want this ginormous, amazing uh, Superman movie. I, I certainly do. But I don't think that's necessarily the right starting point for a revived or resuscitated DC universe. I, I think maybe something like a Batgirl scale movie would have been a good starting point. You know, you, you can you can slowly gain people's trust back. I mean, for crying out loud, let's talk about let's talk about you know the the time when Batman needed to earn people's trust back after Batman and Robin. What was Batman Begins budget? Batman Begins budget was 150 million dollars. That is a pretty well-budgeted movie, but it was also a really good story. Now, what was the box office? The box office was apparently $373.7 million uh, domestically in the United States. Now, this is not a billion-dollar movie. And that's okay, because it, it, it restored people's faith in the brand, and then you come out with the next one and suddenly the you know the dark knight is like this critically acclaimed darling that shovels money you 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 can't come out of, from point 0 and think you're going to be able to make a billion dollar movie you have to take a little bit of time restoring the brand 
Yeah, and that's I'm looking it up right now. It had a, uh, the Dark Knight had 185 or 180 million dollar budget and had a, over a billion in the box office. So like you start slow and you you absolutely nailed it, and then you can build towards something, and that builds anticipation. I mean, think about that just from a storytelling. You know, we're both writers, a storytelling perspective. You have to build that storytelling so you have stakes and something. It means something uh, in order for it to pay off. And I think, you know, the reason I say break, cla- break glass in case of emergency and just continue going with the Battenson universe is because those same students, uh, you know, were excited about the Batman movie and its quality. And so I think it was a step in the right direction of like rectifying the DC brand for like the general audiences. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Alrighty, folks, how do you feel about the whole Warner Brothers situation? Oh, pardon me, Warner Brothers discovery. Um, Please, you know, feel free to find us on social media and tell us how you feel about it. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Nerd by Word and individually at That Nerd Dave and at That Nerd Chris. And after this short break, we are coming with our final segment, a couple of cool nerd commendations. So stick around. And we're back, and it's time for everybody's favorite segment. It's time for... All right, Chris, we're going back to the well here, apparently. What you got? Yeah, we both are coming back with part two nerd commendations. Mine is just a couple of weeks old, but I needed to revisit it. Um, I typically don't like to put something in nerd commendations until I've completely consumed all of it. If it's a comic series, I've read every issue, or if it's a show, I've watched every episode. Um, but I, I, I jumped the gun on the recent release of, of WWE 2K22. As I'm, I'm slowly immersing myself back into professional wrestling, the recent quote-unquote retirement of, of Vince McMahon. Um, had me interested that Triple H is now the head of creative. I found a way to watch AEW, so I'm I'm, I'm getting back into pro wrestling and and I'm 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 enjoying what I'm what I'm seeing. And and part of you know the reason for me to get back in uh, was was the purchase of this game. And so I previously chronicled a couple of weeks ago how much I enjoyed like the created superstar, the My Rise uh, mode of the game, uh, and the My Universe one where you can go with a either a particular character or create everything yourself on a particular show and make all the matches and and all of the promos and all of that but um i neglected to check out these other game modes so i just wanted to create a part two of this nerd commendation because it was strong enough of an enjoyment level to warrant it um there's a showcase mode if you're a ray mysterio fan like he's the cover athlete of this game um celebrating his 20 years at wwe and and even beyond that his days in wcw and this is like one of the most innovative things i've ever seen in a video game or a sports video game showcase mode you recreate and relive um the biggest matches of Rey mysterio's career so for example you have the halloween havoc i believe 96 where he faces off against eddie guerrero wrestlemania 21 where he fights off eddie guerrero and it's the seamless transition where you're recreating these moments in game, but then it transitions at pivotal moments back into the old footage of the real life um, matches as they took place. And then you go right back in and right back out. And so you're recreating these moments that really, really happened. 
um, and then back and forth. And it's just really, really cool to like immerse yourself in like a time machine, if you will. Um, now it is completely Rey Mysterio centric. So if you're not as big a fan as I am of that character and like the luchador style of wrestling, which I am, uh, it might not hit as much for you, but I'm a huge Rey Mysterio fan, you know, being a, a huge fan of Latina culture really, really resonates with me and my fandom. But that's just like, even if you're not just the, the innovation and, and the, the willingness to listen to the valid criticisms of the tire fire that was WWE 2K20. And to introduce something two years later that's this innovative and this unique is really, really, really cool. And then they also have, you know, it's kind of a carbon copy of other popular features of things like Madden or um, or FIFA, where you kind of have like this trading card element uh, in the My Faction mode. But it's really, really interesting the way that they chose to do it that makes it stand out. Um, but it's really fun that you build your own deck of superstars and you build your own faction. Um, and then you can choose to, to purchase new cards and packs via, you know, virtual currency. Um, but it's really, really innovative the way they do it. They have these, um, weekly towers and then the proving grounds or faction wars. So you can, if you like PVP, you can create your own squad via these decks and take on other real life players or you can work through these complex story modes that they have built in this different game mode this is in addition to all the other stories that they have and then also another one that i tried out it's pretty difficult to be honest is you have the gm mode where you choose one of the um, historically relevant gms you could be stephanie mcmahon or shane mcmahon or william regal or adam pierce or a multitude of general managers and then you go up against another general manager, let's say you choose to take over Raw or SmackDown or NXT, and then you have to draft your roster. You have to um, make hard financial decisions based on how much you're going to promote. Um, and basically you're creating, remember like the Monday Night Wars of the late 90s and early 2000s, is you're recreating that in real time, going up against Raw or SmackDown or whatever the competing brands and general managers are. With your roster, you can hire people on short-term contracts to boost your ratings and everything so it's just really cool and innovative game that i did not get a chance to play before i made the nerd combination the first time around and i think this is something that we should probably institute more often is revisiting things um you know revisiting each other's nerd commendations you read uh, jason aaron's thor on my nerd commendation I'm reading Chips at Darcy's Daredevil right now on your nerd commendation. So I think this might be a way to kind of evolve nerd commendations into a different chapter. Yeah, I kind of like that. Uh, I'll say that, uh, again, I, you know, I always loved wrestling games. And there seems to be finally some meat on, on, on that, you know, old carcass again um, with 2K22. So I'm definitely going to have to give it a shot because some of those uh, new modes seem very interesting. All right, Dave, so you are also revisiting a previous nerd commendation, which I am very excited about and wholeheartedly uh, second, although I am still in the first two episodes. Yeah, so uh, when I nerd commended Star Trek Strange New Worlds, I had only seen the first two episodes. And it was so reminiscent uh, of an updated original series that I just instantly fell in love with it. And I just had to nerd commend it. Well, I recently finally finished 
uh, the entire run of the first season, all 10 episodes. And let me tell you, this show actually goes from strength to strength. All the things I said before about the show, the writing, uh, the the recasts, uh, all of those things hold true uh, and actually uh, become more pronounced as the series progresses. So ultimately, all I can say without, you know, turning this into a complete rerun of my um, uh, of my last nerd commendation is just um, if you like the first episode, keep watching. If you like the second episode, keep watching because it actually gets better. I will say there's a couple of weaknesses later on in the show. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of the reinvention of the Gorn. That'd be almost like alien uh, with like, you know, implanting their young in people's bodies and then they jump out. Um, I I wasn't a big fan of that part, but uh, the episode that it happened in was still a really strong episode. Um, Also, uh, the biggest criticism, I think, is that their uh, introduction of a version of James T. Kirk uh, in a sort of flash forward episode uh, into an alternate timeline didn't exactly ring true to me. Um, didn't manage to quite capture who Kirk is as a character, um, as like Chris Pine did. Chris Pine, uh, I think, did a really good job taking the baseline of who K- uh, Kirk is supposed to be and representing that without imitating Shatner's original performance. That doesn't quite work here. I'm hoping that they're spending some time fine-tuning that before they bring that particular character and that particular actor back. Um, It's really funny because his brother, uh, Sam Kirk, actually uh, describes him as the Kirk that we all know and love. You know, it's like doesn't like to lose, bends the rules all the time, but is still a really good captain. And then the way the character is put, oh, and and runs on charm. And then the character that's portrayed is like this black hole of charm and charisma, like there's just none there. So I'm like, there's a disconnect here, guys. But other than those minor nitpicks, I would say the show is absolutely fantastic and just needs to be seen to be believed by any Star Trek fan. Well, you, you, you answered my question before I could ask it. I was going to play devil's advocate because I remember you having that nitpick about Kirk in particular. But I think, honestly, for me, we take for granted how wonderful these recastings have been, both in the Kelvin universe and in this series in particular. You know, Celia Rose Gooding, you know, in that second episode in particular, what I've seen so far was absolutely just wonderful as Uhura. In, in a role that Keeps you, getting better. And you don't think that, like, you can revisit that. And, like... Both Ethan Peck and Zachary Quinto have been spot on. And as as iconic as Leonard Nimoy is in the role of Spock, like you would never think to even recast those things. And and the the way that they are able to take those roles and kind of pivot and make them their own. Uh, Chris Pine, you mentioned, is I think the world of. Um, I'm excited uh, for that Dungeons and Dragons movie for no other reason than Chris Pine and. He does not have to play an ancillary part of the Wonder Woman franchise, and, and particularly in '84, it was such a such a strange choice there, uh, directorially and overall. But I'm I'm very excited to dive back into this show simply on those strengths. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. This is a was a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you like what you just heard, you can find us on any podcasting platform. Drop us a rating, a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can find us wherever podcasts are available, including our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And be sure to follow us on social media uh, at nerdbyword on Twitter and Instagram. That nerd dave and that nerd chris individually be sure to visit our uh link tree bio um our, our link tree link in each of our social media bios 
for more goodies, you can find all of our podcasting platforms, our merchandising shops on TeePublic and Redbubble, and all the other good stuff uh, from the Nerd by Word. We thank you for listening, and as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.